Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is our 515th show, and our guest for today is Dr. Tim Maudlin, professor of philosophy at New York University, and we're going to be talking about a debate over the physics of time. Joining us in the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. To begin with, welcome back to the show, Tim. Thank you. It's good to be back. We are very excited to be talking about this timely topic. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Right. <laughs> so our first segment is called Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little bit of background. So can you start us off with just some basic information about how physicists understand time? Well, that's, a, that's actually a much harder question than one might imagine. Um, uh, let me start with an easier question, which is how physicists, as it were, represent time or, or use time. Uh, that's easier. Everybody's a little bit familiar with that, that we normally have what we would call a time coordinate, which is just a number that we assign to different events. And... Uh, the number, as everybody knows, well, this will be airing much later, but we're about to change uh, from daylight savings time back or whichever way we're about to lose an hour. Uh, that number can suddenly jump around, even though nothing very strange has happened, right? We've just decided to use a different, a different number all of a sudden. And so what, what happens is there is a number normally called the t-coordinate that's used in solving equations, which physicists use all the time for making their predictions. The question is, what does that number correspond to in the physical world? And there, there is a tremendous amount of both debate and, I think, confusion. And the nature of time, the structure of time, as it exists independently of any coordinates or numbers or conventions we use is something that's very deep and, and difficult to get at. Um, I can say that there was, for time immemorial, a general sense of how time worked that, that Newton articulated very clearly in his work. And then when we get to the special and general theories of relativity, Clearly, there's a renunciation of that. There's the, the idea that time has a very different structure than Newton thought it had. Uh, and there's another debate which we might get into. Strangely enough for anybody in the audience, I have to tell you, this is a real debate, whether time has a direction. Uh, and uh, you might find that strange. You might say it's the most obvious thing in the world that time has a direction, uh, that unlike space, which doesn't as it were, go from north to south any more than it goes from south to north, that time goes from past to future. Uh, and I'm going to be the very boring person who's spending his time defending this very simple notion that time actually does have a direction. And you have to take my word for it. There are a lot of physicists and philosophers that are trying to deny that. Uh, and so there's a, a lot of debate over that. Well, Tim, that brings me then to, to the logical question. When I read your, your uh, article here, um, the thing that jumped out at me is, why is it that we don't trust our senses? Why is it that, that physicists seem to be so 
enamored, if you want to use that word, of denying senses. Um, it's it's how we function every day. It's how we get through every day. Uh, why do we why do we think that our senses are somehow lying to us? Yeah, and that's a really excellent question. And I'll make it even a little worse, which <laughs> is that the most skeptical, one of the most skeptical people in the world at a certain time was was Rene Descartes in his meditations. Mm-hmm. He sort of sat and thought gosh, what can I know for sure? And, and, and he managed to get himself even doubting whether there was a, a physical world, a spatial world at all, that maybe it was all a dream, as it were. But even at his most skeptical, Descartes never questions that time is going on and he's thinking in a sequential way and drawing conclusions and so on. He, he questions space but not time because time is an immediate characteristic of our, even our inner experience. So how did physicists manage to think, no, we're worried about time? And there's a technical answer, which is that Newtonian physics and even later physics has a a feature that's often called time reversal invariance, which it's not a great name. But the the idea is if if you live in a Newtonian world or, or imagine a world with a bunch of uh, perfectly elastic billiard balls colliding with each other, that if at some moment you reverse not time, but velocity, that is the, the derivative with respect to time, how it's changing with time, if you take all your billiard balls and turn them around and run them in the other direction at the same speed, they'll then undo everything that they did. I mean, the thing will look like a movie being run backward. And that's just what Newtonian physics tells you will happen. And there's a similar kind of feature in quantum mechanics, a a similar kind of feature in relativity. So this time reversal invariance runs very deep in physics. I don't think that implies at all that time doesn't have a direction. In fact, the way you state it suggests it does have a direction. It says, look, if if it's possible for for a... glass to fall off a table and shatter on the floor, then according to the laws of physics, it's possible for broken shards on the floor or separated shards on the floor to suddenly jump up off the floor, reassembled into a glass and land on the table. And that's true. That's what the equations tell you. But notice that I depended on the direction of time to distinguish those two cases, right? I mean, one happens all the time and the other we never, ever, ever see. And the difference is the, the time order in which those things are occurring. So the fact that the equations are time reversal invariant doesn't really imply that time itself doesn't have a direction. But many physicists somehow have gotten them into a mood of thinking that it does. <laughs> well, obviously, we have a lot more to talk about uh, with this. So please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University. 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television. Reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. And our guest for today is Dr. Tim Maudlin, professor of philosophy at New York University, and we're talking about a debate over the physics of time. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. Brett, start us off. Gladly. So, Tim, you, uh, in the article, um, talk about um, reinventing geometry as a way to understand time. Can you give us the uh, Cliff Notes version of that? <laughs> um, yeah, I can try. Uh, the, there's Mathematical physics obviously uses math to represent the physical world. That's what it does. And anybody who's taken a little physics did a whole lot of math when they were doing it. And that raises an interesting question, which is why in the world is mathematics a good way to represent the physical world? I mean, the physical world isn't made of numbers. And so the one immediate thing to notice is that when you learned math, you learned to add and subtract and some algebra and to work with numbers. But hopefully you learn some geometry too, like Euclidean geometry, which doesn't directly use numbers. I mean, you'd use a straight edge and you'd use a compass and you'd use a lot of logic to figure what follows from what. But uh, geometry is the branch of mathematics that seems much more naturally suited to represent physical reality, that physical reality really is geometrical. It's not really numerical. So the first thought is, if you want to understand space and time, think geometrically. And then the second thought is, which goes back to what we were just talking about, that um, time is different from space in that time has a direction, and space doesn't. So if you want to use geometrical representations for time, you should be using things that are that have a direction to them. So to put it bluntly, use little arrows, right? Um, arrows are, ge are geometrical things, but they, but they have the difference between the two ends, so they indicate a direction. That's what they're for. So I've been working on novel ways of 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 understanding the structure of space and time geometrically um one part of this which goes back to this direction of time thing is that it has this, a, a a fundamentally asymmetric uh directed piece of it which is supposed to be what's representing time the other thing that i'm doing is i'm trying to to do it in terms of a discrete structure rather than continuum so there as it were uh, geometrical atoms, things you can't get smaller than. And this idea that, that maybe space and time are really discrete or atomic at, at the smallest scale or that there is a smallest scale is something people have thought about for, for centuries, if not millennia. But uh, there are lots of ways to try to implement that idea, and I'm just working on a novel one at the moment. Okay. Rick? Tim, uh, I uh, had no problem with the direction of time when I was young, and then I read a book several years ago titled The Arrow of Time, and I forget who the author of it was. And in that, I was introduced uh, uh, to the concept of entropy. 
that that is what I believe this book was talking about. The uh, uh-huh. the increased disorder of a system uh, was directly related to time, the arrow of time. Uh, what are your feelings about that old book? Well, of course, there is a conceptual problem about obvious time asymmetries. And that's there, there are lots of things that only happen, as it were, in one direction of time. I mean, I gave you the example that, that all the time, unfortunately, glasses fall off of tables and shatter on the floor. But never, ever, ever has it happened that the disconnected pieces of glass on the floor have, as it were, been pushed up by the, by the floor and uh, assembled themselves in midair into a glass and landed on the table. So that's just a fact. There are all kinds of asymmetries like that. It's easy if I give you, I mean, here's the difference. If I were to give you little, little still frames of my perfectly colliding billiard balls that I talked about a minute before, perfectly elastic billiard balls, not on a table, not with any friction, not with any felt, and I gave you frames of a movie of them interacting, you couldn't figure out which order those frames go in, right? Because either, either way of doing it will look equally plausible. Um, if there's felt on the table, then you can, because you can see, oh, here's the ball and it's slowing down and coming to rest eventually because of friction. So the question is, why, where do these asymmetries come from? Why are there these asymmetries in time? But the normal way to state that is to assume time itself has a direction, because you say, why do these sorts of things precede those rather than the other way around? And the answer to that is often um, this concept of entropy. It's not exactly, people often say it's a measure of disorder, but that's, that, that can be quite misleading. I mean, I, I've heard over and over people say, that when you clean up your room, the entropy goes down. And that's absolutely <laughs> untrue. Um, you know, after you finish cleaning up your room, the entropy has gone up for reasons about having to do with the, that, that the books you put back up on the shelf are now a little warmer than they were at the beginning um, because there was friction and things like that, not in ways that would be obvious to the naked eye. Um, so, sure, entropy is a very important concept, but... What I object to is that people want, who, who are worried about the direction of time say, oh, well, time just is, by definition, uh, the direction in which entropy gets larger. And that's just wrong, because physics tells us entropy can go down, and it does go down. Um, it fluctuates down all the time, and in principle, it could go down quite massively. Nothing in the laws of physics would stop it. So I think, again, there's a good question about arrows of time, but it's not a question about time itself. It's a question about phenomena in time. Okay. Tim, one of the other things that, that um, I've read about in talking about time that, that makes no sense to me, and I guess maybe my struggle is with the whole concept of space time being a single thing rather than, than distinct things. Um, is the idea of time being not one dimension, but two dimensions, or, or maybe even more than that. Can you help me understand what that whole conversation is about? Well, I can help you a little, but I should start out by saying that, I, and I know there are people who have speculated about time being two-dimensional, 
that's not just saying you should think in terms of space-time. So if you, if you go to the special theory of relativity, the general theory of relativity, nobody would say that time is more than one-dimensional in those theories. Um, what happens is you, you learn some math in order to learn relativity. And in the normal math, yes, time has, there's one dimension, temporal dimension, as it were, and three spatial dimensions. But then once you learn the math, you say, oh, look, I could twiddle with the math <laughs> and at least formally come up with a gadget where there are two time dimensions or three time dimensions. And this is just, um, you know, technically it's called the signature of a metric. But it's OK. So there's some math there. And, and where you have fun math, somebody will come along and say, maybe I can make some physics out of it. And so there have been, uh, you know, I know there have been some speculations about two-dimensional time and so on. I don't think anything physical has ever come out of that. I mean, not to blame people who want to play around with it, but there's certainly no phenomena that suggests it. And as far as I know, no physical problems that it would help with. It's just kind of, well, let's see what I can do by fiddling with the math this way. That makes me feel better, actually. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Brett. Uh, so now I I feel the need to ask the obvious question: Why did you start studying this and and getting in these arguments? Is this just something where you're like, wow, someone needs to de- defend common sense, or uh, was it a more convoluted path? No, I mean it's pretty much that. I I've, I've been interested in foundations of physics forever. And, you know, one of the parts of the physical world that's really important is space and time or space-time. And, and you get into this and you earn some relativity. And that, you know, it takes some getting used to, but eventually you understand that. And it's just that in that literature of people doing it all the time, people are telling you there's this issue that time doesn't really pass or time doesn't have, have a direction and so on. And I kept saying, but yes, it does. I mean, what are you saying? <laughs> um, and, and the arguments that were being put forward to try to convince you that you're not really getting older just struck me as being, you know, wrong. And, and I, I used to make a joke, a half a joke. I'd get up and give talks and say, the amazing thing is that I actually get paid to go around giving talks, defending the thesis that time passes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, in an ideal world, I don't think what I'm saying would be at all controversial, but in fact it is. And so, yeah, I do feel like I, I need to get the word out and put people's minds at ease. <laughs> Rick. You know, Tim, if I had thought about it back when I was in college, I could have bottled water and sold it. But I thought, how stupid <laughs> yeah. would that be? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Tim, we, we had a guest on a, a while back, Katie Mack, who... Uh, uh, talk to us about the uh, uh, end of everything, astrophysically thi- uh, speaking, and mm-hmm. one of the one of the theories of the death of the universe was the ultimate decay of atomic particles, and I think mm-hmm. she was saying it's going to take uh, ten to the ten millionth a year to, before that happens. But um, I'm back to entropy again. This is you mentioned increasing and decreasing of of entropy. Under what kind of system or uh, what's your picture of entropy decreasing in the universe? Well, once you have a definition of entropy, it's, it's easy to see that it can decrease. Actually, it's the very same argument I gave you about time reversibility. Um, anything that makes entropy go up 
physically it's possible for a kind of inverted process to make it go down. Now, what will happen at the end of the day? If, if the universe were a closed system, and this was proven long ago by Poincaré, it's called Poincaré recurrence, if the universe were a closed system like in a box, then eventually the universe will come back as close as you like to any state it's in. And so, you know, Poincaré just showed that given those conditions and given that you're using, he was using Newtonian physics, um, if the entropy is low now, eventually it'll be just as low again sometime in the future. But then when you calculate the so-called recurrence time, how long that will take, it's so ridiculously long that, you know, there's no point breaking your head over it. Um, now, if the universe isn't really closed, if it somehow is infinite and, and can keep expanding, then you don't have a proof that, that the large-scale entropy will ever go down. And it may be, as, as Katie Mack was suggesting, um, maybe everything will just end up as a kind of soup of, of, of very weak photons. Um, and, and there will be this kind of what was called heat death of the universe, although it will actually get quite cold. Um, and, and all the matter will decay. Whether that happens or not, we really don't know. For a long time, people were quite convinced that matter would decay. And you may remember that back in the 80s and 90s, there was a big thing looking for proton decay, and they'd have yes. huge yes. glass, you know, things of water deep underground and monitor them, telling us any day now we'll see a signature of proton decay. They never found it. <laughs> so um, we really don't know how things are going to end up. Um, Roger Penrose has a theory where, where this phase, if it happens, will actually be followed by another phase, what he calls a cosmic cycle, where things just sort of start up again um, through a kind of interesting process. Um, so all of that is just speculation. But the timescales you're talking about are so immense that, you know, I wouldn't spend too much time worrying about it. I'm not, I'm not worried personally. Well, <laughs> and so Tim, I'm going to ask the reverse question. So, so how does time play into, how does our thoughts about time play into the beginnings of the universe where you had, you know, a low entropy state and all the rest of that? How does that, how does that affect the way we think about time? Right. So now we have the other question how or did the universe begin? Um, and one way to get at that, and this is, we're back again to this technical thing that, that the, the equations are time reversible, so I can use them to retrodict just as well as I can use them to predict. And that's how people got to the Big Bang theory. They started with the equations of general relativity and ran them backward in time. And what they seem to come to is the conclusion that uh, you eventually get back to a singularity, and there was, as it were, a first moment of time, which, was, you know, it's a surprise, okay? I mean, it's kind of a surprise both ways, right? If you tell me time goes on forever backwards, that seems weird, because you say, well, how did, how did you manage to get past an infinite amount of time? And if you say time ends at some point in the past, that sounds a little weird, too, um, but in any case, if the Big Bang is true, and this is the sort of thing that Penrose, as I just mentioned, would deny, because he would have another cosmic cycle before this one. But if the Big Bang is true, then, yeah, the universe started out at some point. There's an initial state. And as a matter of fact, it has to be a very, very, very low entropy state. 
And that's a puzzle because in a certain sense, uh, if you pick a random possible state, it will not be low entropy, right? The low entropy, the lower the entropy, the, 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 the smaller the number of states there are like that. So that raises the question, well, why would it start out in a low entropy state? And um, Penrose also actually had a proposal about that when he believed in low entropy states, which had to do with a thing called the vial curvature. I mean, there's some technical stuff. But he said, well, you know, it, it just happened to have this particular feature, which gives it low entropy. Um, but these are these are really great questions um, to which we have no agreed upon answer at all. All right. Well, so it is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, Tim, why do you think knowing about what time is and how it works, why is that relevant in today's world? Well, if you're just getting up to make breakfast, it probably isn't. I mean, I think you know time well enough to get yourself to work on time most times. Um, So it's really of interest only... uh, if you're just intrinsically interested in the fundamental nature of space and time, like I am, or if you're interested in the very long-term prospects or the very, or very long ago, as we've been talking about, where's the, where's the universe heading in the end and where did it come from? But um, you could get along in your everyday life perfectly well without, in a, at a practical level, I think, without being particularly worried about any of those things. <laughs> okay, um, so I lied. Uh, I have one more question that I'm going to ask, and and this one, since Rick has been quoting books all over the place, I'm going to do mine. Um, a few years ago, Kurt Vonnegut wrote a book called Timequake, in which mm-hmm. he has the, the universe uh, decide that it's simply tired of going forward all the time. And he it decides to go in reverse, and then it realizes that that's a mess. I don't like that. And so then it starts going forward in time again. So you have this, you know, the whole book has this sort of weird deja vu kind of experience mm-hmm. to it. Um, so my question is, is there, is there anything in, in physics that sort of demands that time continue to go um, from one place or to another, and that we would notice, because I'm thinking about Hume talking about causality, and you know whether or not you're just talking about correlations. Is it? Do we think time is always going in in a particular direction, just because that's the way it looks, or is there something in physics that requires it to go that way? Is in other words, is time foundational? I, I think time is foundational. I think it, the, 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 there's an art. Uh, to deciding where you should stop trying to analyze things. Because you can't, everything can't be analyzed into something else, right? There has to be a, a ground floor, a foundation, uh, from which other things are constructed. And space and time seem to me to be a great place to stop. And that time is directed, seems to me, to be a great place to stop. And that people um, trying to kind of dig below that foundation or they've hit rock bottom and they're not really going to succeed. Um, so does time always, what, if time is directed, then by definition, as it were, it goes forward. I mean, it's the thing by reference to which we define forward and backward. I mean, suppose you put your car in reverse and you say, now I'm driving backward. Well, you have to say, what's the difference between driving forward and driving backward? Well, 
as time goes on, when I'm driving forward, I'm further ahead along the road in the direction of my headlights. And when I'm driving backward, I'm further along the road in the direction of my taillights, right? And so I have to mention which way is forward in time to tell whether I'm driving forward or backward. So time is the reference by which we define these things. And so the idea of time itself reversing sort of makes no sense. <laughs> All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI at KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 515th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zabital. My name is Jay Swords. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Tim Modlin, professor of philosophy at New York University. We've been talking about a debate over the physics of time. Our history buffs were Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish everyone to experience the great Pasutu proverb, Hotza Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.